this is a surreal, uh, this is your life moment here. But uh, I'm very honored to be on uh, the panel uh, sitting at this table with these people. But so I'll briefly introduce them, and I think I'm going to actually let Peter Urban start with the questions, but we'll, st we'll introduce in this order. So all five of the people up here are people who had, I had the opportunity to interview for the book and who were very helpful in different ways, different chapters, different parts of the book with their insights and memories and recollections. But this is Joan Osato and um, Mike. Yes. Now, this is not a proper biography of, of Joan, but the connection that I had to, to her with the book was that she took a lot of very memorable photos of uh, Faith No More in their early days, also uh, Papo Pies and other photos that appeared in Wiring Department. Uh, a zine published by Eric Cope, who unfortunately is not in the country and can't be here, but that was really important in terms of my understanding or beginning to understand some of the the real underground of San Francisco circa 1984, 1985. Um, uh, Bill Gould, speaking of the Papa Pies, Bill Gould, and he was also in that other band, Faith No More. Uh, yeah, and uh, one of the very first people I interviewed when I had the idea that I was working on this book, and just incredibly helpful uh, sharing his memories, recollections, etc. We actually kind of lived around the corner from each other back uh, for a little while, uh, early 2000s. Uh, how do I say it? David Dog, Swan? Dog Swan. Dog Swan. Okay, yes. And uh, of the, yes, multi-talented uh, of the Longshoremen who are, by the way, performing on Monday night at Bottom of the Hill. And um, uh, the Club Foot, uh, there's a chapter about Club Foot of which he was a board member. That might have been the last time you sat on a panel. Was the Club Foot record release party yeah. 40 years ago? 40 years ago. We had a recording though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that, yes, that was a club foot, the original club foot that started in late 79, 1980, 81, and the associated LP with Richard Edson on the album cover. And then he went on to do the LPs with Longshoreman, hosted a, whoops, public access show with, uh, was Penelope Houston the co host? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Doghouse. Yes. Uh, Carolyn, Carolyn Falk, aka Cernai. Uh, was in the band. Uh, was in the band trial. Who uh, rehearsed, rehearsed at Hudson Street Studios, and um, was it next in like down the hall from Faith No More, or yeah. and even yeah. in the same room? Okay. Yeah. Why uh, Desmond, her bandmate in trial, uh, appeared on the uh, cover of the first issue of Wiring Department. Right, I think it was the first issue. But anyway, I had she was one of the very last people I interviewed, but it was very again very helpful in that chapter, which is called uh, again I'll credit Desmond Shade, San Francisco as Manchester, and it's about Gloria Stan, uh, wiring department, and sort of the, the that gloom bleak kind of era that, that was, uh, and then and some trial enters into that, and then she also among other accomplishments uh, and other things that she's done, worked with uh, Michael Belfer. Uh, our um, dear friend uh, passed away around uh, this time last year, and I had the opportunity to work with him on his memoir. Um, and then uh, Peter Urban, the right. the Pope of Punk. I don't know. I don't know who uh, came to that, but I'm not going to argue with that. But Peter, okay, <laughs> uh, Peter, um, I find it really interesting that 
bands had, like, kind of like the Sex Pistols had Malcolm McLaren, <laughs> Negative Trend, and the Dills and Zeros had Peter uh, as manager, maybe minister of propaganda, but uh, Peter, uh, once again, someone who was very, very helpful, and there's one chapter in particular, uh, I believe it's chapter nine, called uh, No Going Back, and it talks about really how kind of punk, punk as a genre, or as a time, as a, as a really, as a brief explosion is kind of fizzling out, and then it's a question of what's going to happen next. And Flipper. <laughs> Flipper and the Midgets, and so that, that kind of, that was, that from negative trend to Flipper and the Toiling Midgets. And so he was really instrumental in sort of uh, helping me kind of get that idea in, in mind. And so with that in mind, I, I thought um, I would hand it over to you, and I'm not going to even ask you a question, but just... Uh, <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> So, uh, judging from uh, chronology, when I was involved, I think probably what I sh should bring to this panel is some discussion of getting to post-punk. Um, I have said many times that punk rock is not was not a genre. It was, in fact, I like to think of it as an anti-art movement, except in the arena of music, and in that sense was akin to Dada, which I also think was not a genre. And I believe both Dada and Punk were very time-limited. They arose in response to some specific things and only could arise in relation to those things. Punk is a tomato, throw it against the wall. That's right. Thank you. Um, so in order to, it's not a, often it's seen as an elitist thing, it's not an elitist thing to say to someone who had a punk band in 1985, well, you really didn't get it. But they really didn't get it, because the thing of it was that we were all rejects. Nobody recognizes that we were not cool in 1977, 78, 79. We were not cool. We were rejects. We were mutants. We were mutants, exactly. And people literally would cross the street if they saw you coming, or they would throw something at you. And literally, that was the reception that we got. And punk rock is defined by that, because unlike a lot of rejects who stand on the sidelines waiting for their opportunity to get into the mainstream, we just said, fuck you. And, and that is the essence of punk rock. But it's not sustainable. Okay, and just like Dada was not sustainable, when you're an anti-art movement, essentially, uh, that negativity will not carry you indefinitely. So eventually, there had to be a transition. And I had the opportunity, because I managed negative trend, to sort of over, to see the birth of post-punk, if you will, because there was two crucial bands that came out of it. One was Flipper. One of them was Flipper, and the other one was Tony Mitchell. There we go. And um, the negative, negative trend was really, I think, I, I think an argument could be made that they were the sex puzzles of San Francisco, if you will. They were the... They were the anarchist side of things. I worked with the Dills as well. They were the socialist side of things. Um, San Francisco was a very political scene. Um, uh, Negative Trend also had the, uh, you know, we rarely had enough equipment to actually play our set. Um, Will never did learn to play his bass, even after his years in Flipper. And, and so they were, in that sense, the essence of punk, right? They were the very essence of it. But as I said, that negativity only carries you so far. And so what happened coming into, actually I'll, I'll say it this way, 
Bruce Luce and I, Bruce Luce from Flipper, spent an afternoon one time discussing what we were going to create, which we would call Pet Rock. And, and the reason why we were going to do this is we were fucking sick of all of these mainstream people coming into our scene, and we didn't like the record companies coming into our scene. We had tried to escape all of this, and now we were being flooded with it. All these assholes coming in from suburbia, and we didn't want them there. So what Bruce and I's idea was was to create this thing, Pet Rock, which was going to be so unlistenable <laughs> that only we would go to the gig. Nobody else would go to them. And when I first saw Flipper, I thought, fuck, Bruce actually acted on this. <laughs> you know, they were dirty. They were, you know, I am the earthworm. I am the ground. Uh, anyway, um, but, but I, was, I remained with Negative Trend when Will and Steve had left it to go on to Flipper. And I, and I give, I, I, and I give uh, Bruce full credit for having run with the Pet Rock idea. Um, but I was still with Negative Trend, and we had, it was, it was then Tim Mooney from The Sleepers, and this kid Jonathan on bass, and Craig Gray, who... I mean, I'm going to just say about Craig Gray, that Craig Gray is the constant for me, okay? He carried out forward into the Twilight Midgets. And he is the essence of the Twilight Midgets, and he was the essence, actually, of Negative Trend, despite the fact that everybody knew Will and loved Will. Um, and and um, but anyway, so Craig was uh, we had a terrible experience with Rico Rick <laughs> as a, a lead singer, and he was a fucking prima donna. But anyway, so we we got rid of him, and 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 Craig brought in Paul Hood, who was a recent recruit from Seattle and the Twilight Midgets were born. And their approach is so different, and this is true of Flipper as well, there is just no commonality between what was going on in Negative Trend and what was going on in Flipper and the Twilight Midgets. And the Twilight Midgets and Flipper are very, very different bands. You can both drag your balls out of concrete. Yes, yeah, I'll give you that. But in any case, so what I want to conclude basically in saying about this is, is it, the, the issue of no going back Punk rock was a moment in time, and it was of necessity only a moment in time. It could not continue, and it had to end. And when it ended, a lot of people turned around, because musicians don't want to work, so they turned around <laughs> to look for something else to do with it, you know, to make a buck, and no, but see, in all seriousness, uh, there was such a flood of things that came out of it. We had the ska thing, we had, uh, we had, um, um, the No New York thing, we had Rockabilly, yeah, no and then we had bands like, and I think of Flipper and Tony Midgets both as being more purely post-punk in the sense that they were an evolution out of people who had a punk sensibility, okay? And, a punk sensibility, and that's what punk had, punk had a sensibility, it didn't have anything else, it had no genre to speak of whatsoever. And, but it had a sensibility, and carrying that sensibility forward into a now more musical era, if you will, Okay, uh, where it wasn't just good enough that we were not part of society and you had to like, you know, earn your chops some other way. That to me is, is the definition of uh, post-punk. That, that is what it was, was taking that sensibility, being that reject, and figuring out that you still have the rest of your life to live and we're going to have to figure out how to get to the end of that road. So that's what, how I'm going to leave off, um, except, except to say that, that um, Craig Gray is, uh, is a personal friend of mine. I managed him in both Negative Trend and Tony Midgets. He has always been the musical essence of the bands that he's in. He is to this day. 
And if you put in toiling midgets in a browser, the first thing that will pop up is, is Eitzel, right, Mark Eitzel, who was with them for one album. And it disgusts me, frankly. Because I consider Craig Gray one of the greatest artists I've ever worked with. And it disgusts me that people are so lacking in discernment that Mark Eitzel would pop up first. But anyway, that, I'm going to leave you with that. But, but, so but the, the transition to post-punk, if you will, I hope that, that's been helpful. I can think of at least one other person up here who has played in a band that's been defined by its lead singer, but we can return to that later. Um, uh, speaking of pathways uh, out of uh, punk, uh, I, maybe I'll throw it to, to you because the Club Foot uh, group, now you didn't come from upstate New York, but the, no. the others did. You came from Seattle. Um, and that was a different sensibility uh, that, that that you all had in common, um, but it was in a, in a sense another thing that came after punk, without resembling punk rock at all. Um, and you could either use that microphone or this one. Um, I thought about either. I thought about just asking you, uh, what does it all mean? But you can. Uh, oh, that uh, I don't know. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it might need to be turned on. Okay. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Oh, I don't know what it all means. <laughs> So maybe you can go with the earlier prompt. I don't know how they, how you you because you told me well maybe maybe what we could use as a, a jumping off point is your memories of sort of pre-punk having these ideas but having nowhere to to put them or do nothing no idea what to do with them and then well yeah in San Francisco when I hit San Francisco late '75 I was living in the Castro Street and there were a lot of nutty people around uh, Don Vinell. Don Boydell, yeah. was yeah. known as Donald Bowie then, and he wore fry boots, and he worked at a record store in, on uh, next to that Chinese restaurant on 18th near Castro that had the booze, and, and so, um, and he really took off so quickly. One day he was in fry boots, and the next day he was a punk rock god, and the horror of it all is that uh, he bought some stuff in New York, yeah. and I think... And they killed him. They killed him, yeah. I think that the story was that they threw his body in a dumpster, and they, they no. gave him an extra strong dose, no. and he died at a fucking young age, and it was the sickest thing that ever happened. Uh, one thing about Bruce Luce and not going with what's popular um, at a certain point, uh, Subterranean Records was always behind the smaller bands. And Steve Tupper would put, uh, he made a lot of money um, as a machinist, which he learned how to do. Uh, well, Steve Tupper of Subterranean Records was almost a digger in the Haight-Ashbury. And then when that got ugly, he moved to uh, Berkeley, and his main thing was harassing the Oakland Draft Board. And uh, I think it is material that maybe around 64 or 65, a bunch of protesters were heading uh, over to Oakland to harass the draft board, and the Hells Angels uh, met them there at the border and wouldn't let them through. And this is kind of sickening that Big Daddy Roth had a t-shirt commemorating that moment. 
Now, Roth got hipper as the time went by, and of course, his acolyte Robert Williams was buddies with Robert Crumb, who's probably 180 degrees away from Big Daddy Roth. But anyhow, as, as time went by, Roth got cooler and sweeter, and he's a real sweetheart, but, you know, that was kind of gross. But anyway, so I believe it was Deaf American that Flipper moved to, yeah. I think. And so, oh, thank you. So basically, um, now I heard a story, I don't know if this is true, that Bruce cut a hole in the roof to get yeah. the master yeah, tapes out. Okay, which that I love. But the thing is, when they moved to Deaf American, uh, Barry Simons and David Stein, on their behalf, sued the hell out of Subterranean Records, which is one of the tiniest labels in the world, and never makes any money. So, Bruce, um, you know, I mean, lip service is great, but some nasty things happened, and uh, it, it wasn't very punk rock, right. as far as uh, I'm concerned. But yeah, so, Richard Kelly and Garrett well, really, I think they were geniuses. And Garrett was obsessed with situationist theory and all that. And I don't know if anyone here met. We should maybe, just for anyone, the Garrett and Kelly being two of the principals of Club Club. Right, right, along with Cindy Buff Richards' uh, girlfriend. And, and uh, we thought, it was sort of like we were high on angel dust or something. We thought we were building an empire, and we had all these board meetings, and we had a, uh, a, 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 a party for the press, and uh, black tie optional, and so uh, Richard and Cindy moved to uh, Minnis Street, and so the old Clubfoot had a, had a rehearsal studio, and, there, and we were still booking stuff there, and then we built a rehearsal studio there, and then we were working on the Clubfoot LP, and then they brought out Arkansas, is Arkansas Man here tonight? Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, and so they brought out a number of LPs after the Clubfoot. Arkansas Man was one, Danny and the Parkin Sisters, Phantom Limbs maybe was the third, I forget. Yeah, I think so. But, but at any rate, those two people were kind of ahead of everyone else in many respects, and Garrett is still a genius artist which he's been forever, and he had a country band. So unfortunately, Richard Kelly, he kind of had a big ego, but he earned it, because he was so suave. Uh, but he started getting paranoid, and so he cut his wrists in the bathtub, and Cindy was uh, modeling for a Japanese weekend event at Moscone Center, and she went home for lunch and found Richard in the bathtub. And that was really heartbreaking. Personally, I cried all day over it. And uh, he was one of a kind. I wish I had a photo of him here. Uh, but at that point, then one day, Richard looked at me. And we all thought, you know, we were doing all this stuff. And then one day, he looked at me and he goes, from now on, it's every man for himself. And I wasn't sure what he meant. <laughs> but then the board meeting stopped. And we thought, we really thought that the Clubfoot LP, because all of a sudden, it was getting all this press, mainstream press. Grill Marcus wrote about it. And we thought, oh man, this is like no New York. You know, this is going to be a big deal. And then it was sort of like, yeah, boom. And, and, and then, after a while, Voice Farm got a recording contract. And of course, that went, boom. 
And so, after a few years, I started to realize that I would remain a nobody for the rest of my life. Oh, one more thing I want to say is, um, um, speaking of people that have passed away, and we all miss Tom Guido and Ken Kofke and, of course, Michael, and, and I think it's wonderful that you helped him get that book out right before he died. I think that was, what a way to go. I think that was really spectacular. And, and, and then when, when you managed to get that book out, I mean, I was speaking to Will about this earlier, starting around 78 or so in San Francisco, there were constantly people coming into town and doing these long interviews and everything, and very little came of much of it. And somehow Will got a hold of me, and also Judy Gittleson, and also Steve Tepper, among other people. And, and I, you know, I've got a big ego, and I love talking about myself in San Francisco and everything I've been involved with. And so I was happy to just talk forever. Why not? You know, please. I, you know, I don't even mind being stopped by a cop if they'll talk about who I am. And, and that does happen occasionally. But, but at any rate, and that was so many years ago, and then it's like, wow, the sleeper book came out, I think this is going to happen, and then all of a sudden it did, and I was shocked, I was thrilled, so I think that's great. But also, speaking of people that are no longer with us, uh, there was a duo, Johnny Mikulak and, and Cara, uh, Tara Kaminiak, and they were graffiti artists, and he was Miss X of the Sluts of Go-Go's cousin, and they lived with Patrick Rokes uh, on Market Street in a really big, beautiful old flat. And so about five years ago, a couple, uh, maybe a week ago, Johnny Mikulak did pass away. And so a couple of the things they did, one was, it hurts when I pee, and another was, fuck the seals, Tina needs a fur coat. So Tara, on her own, right on the back of the Safeway that you can see from the trolley tracks, uh, the one at Church Street, Balls said the Queen, if I had two, I'd be king, if I had four, I'd be a pinball machine. So they caught her, and she had to pay to have it um, removed, to paint it over. But uh, I just wanted to put the word out there for, for Johnny Mikulak and Tara Kaminiak, because... Uh, they're not really well known in the scene, but they were early doing really sick stuff. And there was an issue of Search and Destroy that did document some of their work. All right. Oh, one, one more thing I just have to say. Like, I was involved with a, a number of people that maybe were Boy Clams, Pink Section, Boys Farm, Japanese Weekend, and, and all of us had lived through the, the high point of Western culture which began with uh, maybe Rocket 88, circa 52 or 53. And so like there was this constant evolution of, of music styles in connection with fashion and lifestyle. And we had the media, the cars, the records, everything to play it. And whatever the trend was, you could get what you needed, whether it was furniture or clothes at a thrift store for nothing. So all of a sudden, it's around 1980, and we're going, okay, what's next? Oh my God. And so I went out and I bought a pair of flare pants because I was sure they were gonna come back. And then like two years later, I see a really sad, lonely girl 
across the street from the, the man dressed up like Boy George, and it was pathetic. And, and I can dig Malcolm McClune and his marketing concepts. I think that's fantastic. But, you know, there just wasn't a new trend. Now, of course, there was the, the Seattle stuff that had a certain amount of power, but it wasn't a life-changing trend that changed the world that, that, that you had to understand for a moment because the previous trend was different. It so, was Southern California. So, so, so really, you know, and the funny thing is, is Manhattan, people were still excited in the Lower East Side in the 80s, but in San Francisco, a lot of us were going, well, now what? Do, like, he, like he was saying, do we get a job now? Or, you know, so... Um, no, that came the Orange County invasion. Mm, yeah, anyway. Well, yeah, uh, yeah and, and maybe a segue here is, you know, something that I think, well, what is my segue? These, 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 these waves happen, and one, and they would often burn themselves out, uh, in part due to how much energy they consumed and went through, but um, 1981, I believe April, May, is when the Clubfoot LP and the, the uh, Black Tie event came out, and I think it was August, uh, 81 that you moved up here from Southern California, is that right? Yeah, that's about right. That's probably and right. So, um, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, you had made that point about, uh, a similar point when we first talked about 77 to 79, you know, how quickly things changed and how quickly things were evolving, but maybe where we could pick it up is your initial impressions or of what you saw and experienced. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear this because I moved up in 81, but I grew up in LA and in Hollywood, and I was going to shows like yeah. 79, probably the earliest. And uh, yeah. so it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, I was in high school, and there was a lot of, you know, extremers, bands like that were playing. Yeah. The Orange County invasion, as you mentioned, happened. And down there, it was brutal. And it was just that's, you know, I'm a high school kid, and that's what was going on. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's just what it was. That's where I grew up. And I, I got accepted to go to Berkeley, so I came up here to go to school when I was 18, and uh, where I met Joan. She was my first roommate. And uh, But, you know, it's funny because I got up here and I'm still here because, you know, even though this might have been a dead time for these guys, for me, it's like, wow, like, I can go hang out at somebody's house and just drink coffee and talk about films and talk yeah. about books. Like, you don't do that in L.A., you know? L.A. is like a totally different thing. So it's like, uh, you know, to me, 81 here, from where I was coming from, this was great. Uh, and, you know, like, I was just, we were walking here tonight, and, and Joni and I were looking like, there used to be an after-hours club on the corner here. I think it was called The Offensive, right? Is that what it's called? And I think, I don't know, I might be wrong, was this the Tool and Die? Tool and Die was a few doors down. Oh, was it? Yeah. The old, but I didn't even think about these places till like, like tonight. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, there was no economy here, you know. I came to a place that was like, compared to LA, like, I mean, bands like, you know, there were punk bands and stuff, but you know, like, you know, I knew guys who lived in Hollywood and like David Lee Roth would drive up, you know, to the liquor store and, you know, get a bunch of beer and drive away. Like, you, you see the music business in front of you, like it gets on you, you know. Everybody's corrupted, you know. And up here, there was never gonna happen. Like, so don't even think about it. Don't even go there. And. That to me was was amazing. I mean, for, for the approach of when I went into things, I really never thought that. Uh, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't chase that here. I mean, you would be ridiculed. And, and you just couldn't do it. It just and and 
I was okay with that. I mean, because there were a lot of people just doing stuff and making it work. And, um, and uh, you know, it changed too. And, and there was, you know, there was a little Orange County thread running around here too, but it wasn't like down there. <laughs> hey, whatever happened to Joe? Joe Pot, Joe, yeah, he he's sent an email Reno. about this event tonight. He's in Reno. He wanted yeah, to join the remote. Yeah. yeah. Well, I miss him. Tell me about him. What's up? Well, <laughs> <laughs> off mic later. I mean, wow. This, <laughs> I don't know. That's a great that's it's a, that's a book. But I, I, I should say that I, I met my first, in, um, I interviewed, I had the opportunity to interview Bill in 2003 for an article on the pop-up vibe. And I gathered that, you know, at that time, maybe you were happy to talk about anything other than the things that you, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And, um, but that was really my in, entry point into it, because I went in really reverse chronological order with a lot of this stuff. But you told me about your experience with playing in the pop-up vibes, but also seeing Flipper and what you took oh, from yeah. that, and I even mean, it wasn't a musical stylistic thing, it was something... It was just a thing. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's a hard thing to describe, but, and I, I have to think about the fact that I was like 18 years old, so there's that too, but it was just an anything goes kind of thing, like a Papa Pies, I mean, I was on Broadway, you know, we were drunk, you know, just sitting around, this band kept playing trucking over and over again. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people were getting pissed off, which I just totally got me going, you know, that's like, I, I want to do that. And, uh, you know, Joe Pye was one of these guys in the mission, I don't, I think he was, he was hiding from the last place he'd be living. I think he lived up on, um, in Noe Valley, and he was like, thought they were going to kill him. And so, he would show up mysteriously, like, he'd come by our house, like, and we just, he'd hang out and talk, and then he'd just be gone, and we didn't know where he stayed or where he lived, he didn't want anybody to know where he was coming and going, and, over the years, I mean, I don't know, he's, he lived here for quite a while. He got into database programming. He became like this amazing database programmer. Like he was one of the guys who set up uh, StubHub, right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and he's living in Reno now. He's, and he's big uh, in uh, Apple stock trading, is basically his thing. <laughs> You'd never, ever think in a million years. Yeah. Well, he understood pop culture in a way that was so hilarious and demented. For sure. That's what he was about. A genius. And, yeah, and you, the, one of the things you pointed me to that I was finally able to find was that um, LA Weekly review in 1983 when you all went down there with the Pop and Pies and, and they uh, dubbed you all the worst band in California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, the worst band, and they said, and these guys are like such assholes, they probably are going to be proud of this article. And we were like, yeah. <laughs> and, and so you, you, all, um, you all live down on 16th, is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, 16th, 16th Albion, yeah. I think, yeah. And, yeah, one of, one of the first places we lived together was 16th and Allian, across the street from the compound. That's right, the compound was, which, yeah. Which, which, you know, yeah. well, you know, we used to uh, shoot air oh. guns over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. statute of limitations. Yeah, yeah, statute of limitations <laughs> is run out, yeah. But, but one thing that, you know, that's... Uh, maybe a contrast in the era, say the late 70s and the Search and Destroy era, there are, there was Ruby Ray, um, Richard Peterson, um, James Stark, uh, Bruce Conner was taking photos, 
And that era is really well represented in photos. Okay, yes, many others who I'm inadvertently leaving out. But we get to 84, 85, and it's harder to find uh, photos. Uh, Interesting. You know. So, um, but I'm, I'm just curious how, um, with, with the photos that you took, I mean, there's a lot of the, the photos that, I don't know, that have appeared in other publications about Faith No More, the back of Joe's second record, the picture of Joe, uh, was taken by Joan. Um, where am I going with this? What, 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 how did you, how did that come about? Did you have a, a, a sense of that you were documenting something that people would be talking about decades from then? Or was it just a matter of, hey, these are my friends and I'm going to take some photos or somewhere in between? Well, it, it was a combination of, uh, you know, it was, it, I was working with like analog kind of photography and, and like Rolexes. So it was all like the DYI where you're, Developing everything yourself, you're, you know, you're creating images, but I, it was mostly about documenting the people around me, and so, as well as you know, living with Bill and you know, Joe at one point, uh, those be, being Mark Bowen, those being the folks that I was around a lot, um, I, you know, I just loved image making, right, and I, and I thought they were just, you know, and I still do. <laughs> Um, amazing people, right? So uh, that that was kind of the point. Um, so I didn't do a lot of uh, photography, like inside of shows or clubs. They were they were mostly portraiture. So I would take folks like on our you know walks that we'd go around the city um, from you know one place to another, and um, and then do portrait sessions like out in the street. Yeah. Okay, and one more thing. Uh Speaking of uh, spaces and places where, where you all live, maybe one of the most stark contrasts is, uh, let's say, 1988, 1989, you all were living catty-corner to uh, what is, I think, catty-corner to what is more or less now where, where Twitter is headquartered, but at the Pet Hospital. And that was, there were, there were many legendary, um, just hard to believe kind of living situations, but the Pet Hospital uh, was one of them. And these places become almost like characters in the book. And um, what can you tell people about the, the Pet Hospital? Uh, wow. Uh, so we found the Pet Hospital, and it was actually a pet hospital. So it was an abandoned um, veterinary hospital and when we went in, all the machinery was there. Yeah, everything. The cages. <laughs> the cages. The, yeah, all the jo Joni and I went with our friend Will, who I, I should have, I forgot to invite him over here. But we went with Will, and I remember he goes, there's this place, there's a place we could get, you know. And we went to look at it, this is Animal Hospital. It was really like the animals had just been there. And uh, we were like looking at each other. I remember like, this just sucks. And Will was like obsessed, like, with, I have to get this place. Like, this is, he was like, he had like, he was driven. And uh, yeah, so we were there for a long time, right? Yeah, we were. And the, you know, the great thing about Pet Hospital is that it was like kind of the, the home for the misbegotten. Like everybody would live there uh, at any given time. Um, we did totally illegal, you know, uh, unpermitted, knocking down walls and putting in like all of our plumbing. Uh, we built a house like up on the roof, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, you know, that's that's not the type of thing you could do these days. But I definitely uh, 
recall is it was one of the better things about like you know growing up during that time yeah. is like you know there there weren't any rules no it was a free space there's no doubt about it yeah yeah um, what what's there now? Where all the squatters? The, the new college is there on like Cell Street. Is right next to it. It's a huge uh, high rise now. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, we we had a friend Michael Fury. I don't, I don't know if y'all remember Michael, um, but he he was one of the you know founders of the original kind of Burning Man, and so he did this beautiful. He he worked in Neon. He worked at a place called Neon Neon. And he did this beautiful, like, neon sign that just said, spit. You know, instead of hospital, it said spit. And so it was kind of like, yeah, our little bad signal. Yeah. Good times. Okay, and then, um, I'm not sure if this is the right segue to make, but you, uh, you all rehearsed again uh, out at uh, Hudson Street Studios. Hudson Street, yeah, on 3rd Street. On, okay. and I think so, it's still going, right? Is, is it? It might still be studios, yeah. Okay, and which was not far from Clubfoot, not not not, not too far, far from Clubfoot. Okay, and then yeah, so one of the um, one of the bands that you know we don't have any representatives uh, from here tonight was Glorious Den again, Eric Cope, who published Wiring Department, but also uh, Trial, who um, was I don't know the the main reason that I reached out to you, but. Um, and Carolyn has gone on to do uh, many other things, and I, I mean, I don't know as much about your, your solo work, but there's a 6LP, 6LP box set on the dark entries of her solo uh, music, so definitely as far as the post and doing, moving on and doing other things, but um, you were you of um, a younger group than, than Bill and Joan, and I think you were late teens when you were in trial. Um, where am I going with this? I don't know. Um, anything, anything that you want to take, you can jump off from any of those non-questions. This is often how the interviews for the book went. I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I have. I now have um, it's Sierra Nine. Okay. So um, Sierra nine. Okay. I, I have up to about a, over a hundred albums right now. Uh, so it's kind of gone beyond the six LP okay. box set. So okay. I, I never stopped. Okay. So, but that. Go jumping way back, but before that, I'll say that yes, we I guess with trial, we shared a space with them. Um, I mean, I remember seeing all the drums surrounding and yeah, that was an orange. I just because I think Gloria's Din and us we shared the same space, and I think you guys are in there for a while, but yeah. I can't remember actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm not mean, remember seeing the drum, drummer walking by a lot. Yeah, but um, but uh, yeah, so um, yeah, I think it was our drums that were. Playing, but anyway, um, so uh, no, no, I have been going even far back. So I mean, I, I'm kind of a, in a its own trajectory. Um, it's you know because uh, you know I, I was a teen in my parents' house, and um, you know jumping a little bit back, uh, I mean my father built a drum machine. So and and uh, and then he got different uh, used instruments, and everything was in a living room and a four track. <laughs> And then he wasn't there. <laughs> he wasn't there a lot. So he went for whatever reason. So um, in place of that, I guess, I'm, I'm originally a, more of an illustrator, an artist, but putting that all together, I mean, the stories and everything, so everything, I just started putting things together. I mean, it was, I was in a vacuum. And then um, I was doing four tracking, uh, 81 maybe. Um, 
So it's just building, I mean, I mean my father had uh, reel-to-reels, everyone had it, like carpenters or whatever he liked, and, and then I would erase them. So I can use the tapes. Um, and, and I would never, I don't like cutting tapes, so I would actually just tape over them and then click stop, click stop, and then I just discovered four tracks. Oh, I can get more things on here. So I was just kind of discovering it myself. Then, because um, uh, everything around me were bands, and, and so I would try to be the band, and then that's how I started doing four tracking, like being each instrument. But then I just then I discovered effects, and then I didn't know how to, uh, uh, didn't know anything about mixing boards, so I would just point the mic to change the sound, and then record them. So, um, so that was kind of the groundwork of recording. So, but the thing is, since my father wasn't around, so uh, not me, he was, but on and off. Um, so instead of that voice of authority, the voice of authority was invention. So that's how I see, that's how I've always seen my trajectory, because it through gear that eventually evolved into whatever stage because of, of technology or whatever, it was always invention and I would always figure out what this new new thing was. But during that time period, I was in high school, my social life became going out to the sea. And so um, I, I kind of want to speak about how people were led from one thing to the next, like that everyone knew each other and like the scene back in 81 actually, yeah, I was going to the Flipper and Black Flag Tool and die, and you know, but it, it was just so, uh, I don't know, hanger, what happened, but I didn't, this is not a time period I, I talk about much at all. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we'll have this book because, or, you know, I was, I was like, I have to I have to go back to this period. Um, it, was, it was a difficult period. It was very, it was kind of really destructive, actually. But, um, but I, I wasn't very, like, healthy, you know, and so I, I, I had a boyfriend who, I made a promise to be healthy. And so that, so we started a band called Treason. And he was, uh, he was a bass player, I was a guitarist, and we just started this band. And then we and just, you know, one, uh, no, I, I met this, my boyfriend through just wandering the crowd. And then, and just randomly coming up to them, you know, just, that's just, I don't know, I was just doing that. Um, so anyways, we started a band, Treason, and, and then that just kind of spawned out. My, my first hard, maybe my first hardcore show that just blew me away was Crucifix. Okay. And then it was, uh, and, and then I think some uh, members of that band, we, we just knew one person to the next and then um, evolved into other, um, uh, well, part of that healthy uh, promise evolved into, uh, well, I would promise to be a vegetarian because he, the, the, you know, I because they were, you know, and, and um, so that kind of started this movement uh, of peace punk, I guess, and it was just coming out of being destructive and things, so self-destructive. So then, um, just, I don't know, anyway, so the, uh, that led to kind of this weird, uh, post-punk, however you call it, this other movement where it was political and then it was uh, a state of mind and then I was uh, in, uh, led to trial and that everyone knew each other. Now in trial, the, the drummer was the drummer of Crucifix 
And then the singer of Trial, John Brusso, was also the brother of the bass player in Crucifix, Matt Brusso. And then there was another band, Atrocity, which was the sister of the Brusso. So like everybody. And then Desmond, she was um, a part of Trial. And, uh, and I was also a guitarist for something called Brain Rest, and they were sleeping dogs uh, related to crass. Um, so, but, but everyone sort of like, and then spawned out to like, like the same uh, political uh, messages as like, you know, things were going on, these movements were happening in Europe. So we were just this big global thing started uh, about mess, you know, messaging, uh, you know, Whatever, you know, protesting whatever um, uh, issue, um, and then and then then it led to trial, which um, yeah, I was the bass player of trial, and then the guitarist was Desmond, <laughs> kept going out, and then um, and then we recorded uh, the trial's record at at the compound, this place called the compound where I was introduced to Not Human, uh, who rhythm and noise, which. Was became rhythm and noise, and I then was uh, because I the technology I mentioned like sort of transformed a little bit in the 80s to like digital a little bit, and uh, so I would go over to um, the compound, you know, not would call contact me, and then um, would go there at like he would pick me up uh, like 10 at night, and then I would end at 10 in the morning. <laughs> And I would just all night long compose rhythms, uh, and, and it, it was this place, com this compound. People, whoever knew about it, um, Hunter's Point. This Hunter's Point, and then uh, there's this warehouse, and you go in, and there's this like this air traffic control tower <laughs> inside, and and uh, inside it was a synclavier. And then like, this this, this uh, module synth thing, and then um, and so that so you know it was just <laughs> this really surreal thing where I would go there, you pick me up, and then you you would like teach me how to use the synclavier. I mean that was like I I, 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 I was doing sampling through a Commodore sixty four, and then I go to then I go to synclavier, uh, and, and and so one night uh, you know so I would go over there, and then. It not didn't pick me up, it was Michael Belfer. And I didn't know who he was, actually. Oh. So we go over there, and so Not would teach us how to use the mixing board. So, you know, Belfer and I were uh, there uh, just, you know, he, 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 I would play my drum uh, programming, and then, and then Michael would um, start playing the guitar, and we were working on a demo. And so eventually the group became just so fluid and, and, and we were adding more people and everything. And then we had six drummers and a guy who played and, and, and a guy and a guy who played Tesla coil. And I, I just am singing whatever and then we just evolved into then then we were we had this huge outfit and uh, you know like someone who who was like playing drums from the and dangling from a hover drummer. Yeah, yeah to north. And, um, and then uh, Ricky from Sleepers was also involved in um, some so a demo. So we were trying to we had this like circus, and then we were trying to send out a cassette, you know. And and so how you know how, 
we took almost two years on it, and it's like, how, how do you represent this cassette, you know, every, this, this, this two-ton, whatever, Tesla coil, and the Ciclavir, and the, and the sound traffic control tower, and then once you're sitting up, and you're sitting in cassette. Um, but anyway, our live shows were really interesting because, um, so, you know, not would have, uh, have, have the audience wait at a corner somewhere and then blindfold them and then drive them in a bus. <laughs> and, and, and then they would come in to this compound warehouse, with, you know, with like, like the dry ice, you know, or whatever. And then this performance would happen. Um, and then, you know, then I guess they would be ported out again in this bus and driven and blindfolded again and dri driven somewhere. Um, and then, um, so that kind of, it's it just interesting that the, the way everything wove, um, and, and it's interesting when, you know, this, this, this covered it, like this weird time period, like, you know, or 80 to, you know, when the early 90s, sorry, it was weird because we just, it's like I went into the 90s like as if nothing happened. It was just like, it just went by. And then, you know, the digital things started happening. And so, um, and then, um, but, you know, what's, I don't know what the end of that era means, but it's uh, truly analog, I think, that the way things happened because it, it was so natural. Um, and, and, you know, people, uh, you know, I, I, I never left that philosophy of invention, um, and I feel like um, it's, it is sort of, I don't want to, it's not an authority, but it's more, um, it, 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 it always, it's, it's always, uh, um, you know, outside of it, but it's, it seems timeless to me, what, you know, the, the, the thought of, I mean, in terms of punk, you know, I, I don't think it, like, it's a, I, I think it's basically uh, it, self-invention in a way. It, it's it's yeah, it's it, it is, but but um, it's it's your your right to invent, yeah. and it, it, it's like anything that gets kind of in the counter contrary to that. It, it's it's just your right to invent. So I I, I always it's it's um, I, it does nothing really gets in the way. Um, I don't know if I'm talking about <laughs> no, I have like a thousand page uh, diary of editing since um, I was age nine. I, I, I've never stopped writing. It's almost like a, a, a 30 year movie that never ended. <laughs> or 40, I don't know. It, 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 it's like, I don't know where to cut. <laughs> I, I used to hate cutting tape, so I never cut. <laughs> And so they just had these, uh, I have like all, like, oh, cutting, paper diaries. So then, well, the good thing about digital is that you never get to stop it. You know, so, and anyway, so, um, no, I, I, I just, I, 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 I love, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know what I Well, you told me that, that um, something that, I don't know, it helped you see that it was a distinct time, and I don't know exactly what you said something to me in an email that, that I can't paraphrase because I can't quite remember it. But in terms of cutting, maybe uh, that's the cue is that we 
we should uh, conclude this portion because we and in terms of film, that portion is coming next. And um, I don't know how we make this transition, correct? We can do it right now. Can do it right now. Thank and thank you to everyone here. I know that wasn't the most elegant ending, but.